Matthew chapter 18 is where I'd like to direct your attention. You'll find Matthew, of course, oh, very much towards the end of the uh, Bible. It's the first book of the New Testament, um, but the Old Testament is twice as long as the New Testament. So Matthew 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're going to read uh, with a, I'm going to begin with a rather extended reading of God's Word, and the reason that we're going to do that is because we have before us one of the most difficult topics uh, that we as a congregation of Christ Church can consider together. In fact, um, this topic is not difficult to understand, it's actually difficult to apply. I know a few things that call for as much courage and discernment uh, no area where we're, we're, we're prone to cause unnecessary grief. No area where we can so easily revel in judgmentalism than when practicing biblical church discipline. Um, that's at the center of Matthew chapter 18. And to pick that paragraph, that central paragraph up, we're going to read the whole uh, chapter so we can set it in its context. So let's start Matthew chapter 18 verse 1. Look at what it says and and think about the issue of church discipline as we go through this. The context really does shape and help us understand. Matthew 18.1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed the child among them and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble." Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Just as a brief aside here. Notice Jesus believes in hell and he believes it's possible that you may be thrown there. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that the angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, 
It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant, that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow, servants fell to his, fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back what he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now listen to this story. It comes from Jonathan Lehman. He writes it about a member of a church, which he calls Jill. Listen to this. Jill was addicted to gambling. She grew up in a home where her parents gambled recreationally and never with any great consequence. They even gave her a gambling allowance on family trips to Las Vegas. But in college, Jill's gambling became compulsive. She went to casinos. She joined several online fantasy leagues. She had gambling applications on her cell phone. When Jill became a Christian after college, her gambling dramatically slowed down, mostly because she was distracted by her new faith. Then over a year later, she began to gamble more often. At first, her Christian friends, themselves somewhat immature, regarded her gambling stories as humorous, but not much time passed before they realized she had a significant problem. One of them confronted Jill directly, and Jill agreed that that gambling could be uh, problematic if done irresponsibly, but she averred that hers was under control. Has there ever been an addict who's not under control in their own imagination? (laughs) Then Jill got married. Within a year, Jill's gambling was becoming the defining issue in her marriage. At first, she was defensive when her husband confronted her, pointing to his sin and to the fact that he had bet money on college basketball games when they were dating. But after one bad episode of losing a couple thousand dollars, she relented. She admitted that she had a problem and resolved to quit. Church friends were brought in for accountability. Months passed. The accountability was vigorous at first, but then it slackened. Jill began to gamble again, and the problem escalated quickly. Her first time out, she risked high wagers, and lost a larger amount than she ever had before. The next day, she tried to dig herself out of the hole by betting more, but fell deeper into it. A crash followed, involving both tears and renewed promises, even the promise to visit the church counselor. But in the ensuing months, the cycle repeated itself several times. Finally, one night, an elder received a phone call from Jill's husband. 
Jill was locked up after a drunken altercation with an off-duty police officer. She was at a casino, had lost thousands of dollars, felt horrible about it, sought refuge in alcohol, became belligerent, and eventually found herself swinging punches at the officer who had been trying to calm her down. He had not arrested her, but he had placed her in the casino's dry tank and asked her husband to pick her up. The next morning, Jill was deeply embarrassed, ostensibly remorseful, but also slightly defensive. It was embarrassing, yes, but part of her wanted to maintain that the sin wasn't that bad. The casinos had a dry tank. That casinos had a dry tank was evidence, she reasoned, that her sin was fairly common. Besides, the officer let her off the hook. Wouldn't her Christian friends do the same? So here's the question here before us. What should Jill's church do in response to this? I suppose even before we ask the question, what should they do, we, ask, we have to ask a question, a more prior one, why should the church respond at all? Is, is, is Jill, what Jill doing, is it any of the church's business? That, well, that why question is actually pretty important. It's, it's a question that's pretty important in our day because uh, most of us, the prevailing view is that your religious faith, your beliefs or your unbeliefs are yours and yours alone and no one has the right to question them or challenge them. So uh, why? That, that's why what Jill does when she's out of the building, anyone's business. Why is it what she does, anybody's business but her own? We're going to talk about church discipline today. <laughs> Discipline has positive and negative sides to it. There is formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. Formative discipline is what, what, you, what the church normally does in the teaching of the Bible and they're praying together and worshiping. Formative discipline is what you do when you go to the gym and you lift weights. You're training your body. You're getting stronger. You're getting yourself into shape. That's formative discipline. Corrective discipline, though, fixes what's broken. Corrective discipline is like when you go to the orthopedist and he repairs the ligament in your knee. Or corrective discipline is what we're going to talk about today from Matthew chapter 18, fixing what's broken. And I want to introduce corrective discipline to you this morning, and I want to uh, consider two different questions. Why should a church engage in corrective discipline? And then we're going to talk about how. How does a church engage in corrective discipline. Uh, let's start with the why. Why does a church do this? It's important to start here because it's going to be your temptation. It's going to be your temptation whether you are the person in Matthew 18 doing the confronting or the person in Matthew 18 being confronted. Your temptation is going to think that really it's none of your business or it's none of the other person's business. Um, it, uh, you are going to be tempted to think that you shouldn't be involved in someone else's private affairs or that somebody shouldn't be involved in your private affairs. But remember, there's a distinction. Following Jesus is always personal, but it's never private. And there is a difference between the two. So I'm going to talk about why. And I could name several reasons, a lot of reasons. The Bible gives us a lot of reasons why a church would be involved in corrective discipline. I'm going to focus just on three of them this morning. Here's... Three reasons. The first one is that the nature of the gospel demands it because the gospel is a call to a new life. 
The nature of the gospel demands it because the gospel is a call to a new life. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're new to church, this gives me a great opportunity to tell you one of the most important things, actually not one of, the most important thing about our congregation. It's the gospel. Paul used that word. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this is the most important thing. It is of first importance. We talk about the gospel, we sing the gospel, we read the gospel, we we try in every way in our church to flesh out the truths of the gospel. The gospel, of course, just being good news. And when Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the good news is this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The gospel is about Christ and what he has done, but its relevance starts when it actually describes us, our condition. The Bible tells us that you and I are sinners. We're guilty before God. We don't meet his perfect standards. I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a fund set up by the U.S. Treasury called the Conscience Fund. It was set up in 1811. And the Conscience Fund, it's a department of the U.S. Treasury, what the Conscience Fund does, and those who work in that department, is they receive letters and money from people all over the United States who have at some point in time defrauded the U.S. government. They feel guilty about it, and they're sending in their checks to take care of their guilt. People send all kinds of money for all kinds of different reasons. Not too long ago, they received a letter with uh, just a change in it, They didn't sign the letter, but the person wrote and said, "Um, I am sorry, I reused two stamps. Here's the money to cover what I owe you. Somebody uh, wrote a letter once and said, About 18 years ago, I took from a railroad station an item worth about $25, and this has been on my conscience since, so I'm I'm enclosing $50 to clear my conscience. One of my favorite letters comes from a man who says, Uh, Several years ago, I cheated on my taxes. Here is half of what I owe you. If I still feel guilty, I'll send the rest. (laughs) The largest gift that the Conscience Fund has ever received uh, came without any sort of explanation. It was $155,502, which is a stunningly specific amount of money. Now, why would people feel compelled to pay this, to send this money in. The problem is not a financial one. It's not that their books don't match. That's not what they're concerned about. The problem is actually moral. It is the certainty in your conscience that you have done something wrong. There's a debt to be paid and there's this weight that is there. You have this too. You know what this is like. You don't live up to your own standards. You don't live up to your own standards in how you manage your time. You don't live up to your own standards in how you manage your finances. You don't live up to your own standards in the relationships that you have with other people. You are not nearly as good as you think you ought to be. How much shorter do you fall of God's perfect standards? We stand before him condemned. Now the good news of the gospel is that Christ has died for us. He is our substitute. Death is the penalty we owe. Jesus has paid it by his own death for us on the cross as an expression of God's great love. He bore God's wrath for us. And the call of the Bible is to believe in him. That is to turn to him and to trust him, to receive him as your sin bearer. He's the one who died for you. (laughs) There is no better news in the whole world than that Christ has died for our sins. 
Now, implicit in that faith, implicit in that turning, is this impulse toward a new life. How, how is that? If sin is the problem that Jesus has come to rescue us from, and you turn to him for rescue, implicit in that is a new attitude toward sin. If you need to be rescued from the consequences of your sin, then after you believe, you cannot walk into it with the same abandon. Just imagine, this has happened in my house before. My children are outside playing, and they fall in the mud, and they get all muddy. And they come inside just horrified. Ah, muddy, muddy, get it off. So we clean them up, wash them off, and, and send them back outside. And what do we find? Not three minutes later. They're back in it again. And you think to yourself, apparently your horror over the mud was not as great as you thought it was. Because I rescued you, and you ran right back into it. Something is wrong with your understanding of mud and its danger and the rescue that I provided to you from it. Uh, something is wrong. There's, there, is, uh, there is inherent in that turning to Jesus for rescue, there is this new attitude, this new understanding of sin and its ugly consequences. Remember in, in the gospel stories that Jesus tells uh, about Jesus, when Jesus would heal somebody in a significant way, uh, 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 cast out a demon or uh, give someone new sight or a lame man made him walk, almost always the question that they had for Jesus is, what do I do now? What should I do now? Tell me what to do now, Jesus. You have healed me. What do I do now? How's my life going to be different? You tell me. Having been forgiven, Lord Jesus, what do I do now? Change is normal, it's natural, it's embedded itself in the faith that believes. And if there is no change, something is wrong. That's why a church can't stand by when someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus continues to live like Jill. The nature of the gospel demands it. Now secondly, the nature of church membership demands it too. Because church membership is the affirmation of new life. Jesus told us to bind to ourselves those who are uh, profess faith in Jesus. When someone comes to our church, we affirm their new life in Him. We ask them about their relationship with Jesus. Are you trusting in Him? Has your faith made a difference in your life? When we welcome you into church, we're affirming this relationship with Christ. We are like an outpost of heaven. We're an embassy of God, and uh, we are affirming citizenship, heavenly citizenship of those who come to join the congregation. But what if we can't affirm? What if the evidence ceases, vanishes, disappears? Or if the evidence of your life is actually contrary to your professed belief? Hmm. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. The third here, so the nature of the gospel demands that the church responds, the nature of church membership demands the church responds, and third, the nature of self-deception demands that you respond too. Oh, the Bible warns us. The Bible warns us in a number of places about the possibility that you can be deceived about whether or not you are genuinely a follower of Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure that there have been times where I have voted as an elder, where the, I have voted as a member of a congregation to welcome somebody into membership who is not genuinely a follower of Jesus. 
Maybe that person, we were all wrong in those situations. Maybe those people are not genuine believers because they're confused about how you become a Christian. They think you become a Christian by joining a church, which that's not true. Or they're confused about the nature of this new life, about what it means to follow Jesus, perhaps. But these are the reasons that a church needs to be involved, why we would step in here. That's the why. Now let's talk about the how. How how does a church respond? What is supposed, a church supposed to do? There's a five-step process that's here in this passage. Actually, we begin with not what the church does, but we begin with uh, uh, Jesus mentions a brother or sister in sin. That's where this process starts. The process begins here, a brother or sister is in sin. Now, we have to be careful here because verse 15, the way Jesus does, right, speaks here, it's very general. It's a very general phrase. Um, but he has in mind something a little bit more uh, particular, something more specific. He's not talking about every sin in every circumstance. There are a number of ways that we know that, actually. I, I'm going to demonstrate this. But the New Testament actually tells us in other places how we respond to sin that accompany or go along complement this passage. See, what, uh, Christians are inclined to do a, a, several things when it comes to sin and being sinned against. First, the, Peter tells us that we are inclined to cover sins. That's what we do. We cover sins. Look, I wrote it down, 1 Peter 4, 8. Look what it says. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So Matthew 18:15 is talking about a specific situation. 1 Peter 4a is talking about another situation. What do we do? We cover sins. That is, we unilaterally, without making a big deal of it, without uh, putting up banners or hiring a band or announcing it in any way, we, we forgive. That's what covering is. We do this all the time. We just cover. I say, for the sake of love, because I love you in the name of Jesus, I'm just going to cover and forgive that sin. Um, we just forgive. Uh, when someone says something uh, silly to you in an offhand remark, something hurtful, you, you can cover it. When somebody forgets something, you, you, you can cover it. When, when your child, uh, your spouse comes home from work a little surly, you, you can cover that. Now, second, we have another inclination. Christians are also inclined to give one another the benefit of the doubt. That's what we're inclined to do. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says that love always trusts, love always hopes. We are inclined to think well of one another. We're inclined to think that something is, there's something going on, but probably we have misunderstood it. These inclinations, are actually, aren't they shaped by the end of Matthew 18, that parable? of forgiveness. This is how we relate to one another. We are ready and quick to forgive one another, seeing as much as how seeing how much we have been forgiven by God. How can we not be quick and easy to forgive one another? Once? Yep. Twice? Yep. Three times? Yep. Up to seven? Oh no. You're just getting started. 77 times. And don't count to the 78 either. Right? There's just within us this inclination to forgive. But Jesus does have something in particular in mind in verse 15. In fact, uh, Jonathan Lehman used, uh, suggests that we use a threefold test 
here to, to think about these sins that Jesus has in mind. First of all, he encourages us to ask if the sin is outward. We're looking at sins that are outward. Jesus here in this passage is not talking about envy or pride or covetousness. Now, we need to talk to one another about envy and pride and covetousness. That's important. But he's talking about real, specific, identifiable, outward, visible sins. Larry Osborne says we come to this passage and we find in Jesus' words the the precision of a scalpel, not the blunt trauma of an axe. Not going to go to someone on the basis of Matthew 18:15 and say you're a little proud. Are there specific, observable things? They're outward, manifested. Now, secondly, here uh, Jesus is talking about sins that are serious, sins that are serious. This is not a process to enter into when someone doesn't shake your hand in the foyer, right? That's something you cover. This is serious. They in some ways pose a threat to the public witness of the church. Now third, these are sins in which your brother or sister is unrepentant. Sins that are unrepentant. There's a pattern. It's repeated. It's a sin that your brother or sister will not face and has not faced and is refusing to face. So Jesus is not talking in Matthew 18:15 about every every sin that anybody commits. Why? Because we are in the habit of covering sins and we're in the habit of giving one another the benefit of the doubt for the sake of love. But there are sins that are outward and serious and unrepentant and he calls us into this process. Here's the number 2, step number 2, I suppose. It's actually step number 1, but it's second in the process Jesus describes private confrontation. Private confrontation. Go and point out his fault just between the two of you. Uh, Prepare yourself for this. Prepare yourself, Jesus said, by making sure there's no log in your own eye right before you try to do spec surgery on someone. Prepare yourself, but don't be afraid. Go and talk to them. Go hopefully, go gently. And most of the time, this is where the process stops. Ideally, this is um, sins that are not covered. You go and you talk to your brother or sister and, and you lay these things out, your concerns, gently and hopefully. And they listen to you and they repent. They ask for forgiveness and you have won them over, the text says. <coughs> just, just like the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep. Is there any instance when we are more like God than when we go and rescue a lost sheep? Oh, more rejoicing. Rejoicing over the one who's been found than the 99 that did not wander. Most of the time, Jesus is describing a process that ends right there, that should and that can end right there. But third, if, if the third the procedure here, if, if, this is, if this doesn't work, there is small group consultation. Small group consultation. Verse 16 of Matthew 18 begins with these ominous words. If they will not listen. Now here we have a problem. See, before you've gone by yourself you enter into the conversation with the understanding it's possible that they don't even realize what's happening. Maybe they have this massive blind spot. 
Um, the word point out their fault has, has, is a translation of a word that means to shine the light on something. Maybe there's, there's something in your brother or sister's life that is outward and it's serious and uh, it's, uh, to this point unrepentant and they just, they just don't see it or they don't consider it that much of a problem. There, there's a blindness there. So before you, you go with that, inter, that, uh, that expectation, but now what's happened is you've gone to them and they have refused to listen to you. Uh-oh. They know about it. You've talked to them about it. You've expressed the seriousness of it. And they didn't listen. Apparently what we have is a situation here where at least for a moment, at least in this time, you, you wonder, do, are we talking to someone who loves their sin more than they love Jesus? There, there's not in them a sense of ruthlessness that Jesus commands. Remember uh, the causes of stumble, uh, it, it causes of, of stumbling. If your hand causes you to sin, stumble, chop it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. He's speaking figuratively, but there is a ruthlessness here. And when the person refuses to listen, they are exhibiting that they do not have this ruthlessness about sin at all. That they're, they're inclined to say to you, oh, it's no big deal. It's not my problem. Go talk to somebody else. You're not any better than I am. It's a problem. So get one or two involved. Find one or two others with you. Now, just an aside, Jesus doesn't mention this here, but this would be a, a wonderful opportunity, if we're, we're thinking about this, for you to involve an elder in the participation here. It's not mandatory in the text. It's probably a good idea. Now, why would you take one or two along with you? Now, uh, there's a couple of different reasons. First, you want an eyewitness to confirm their stubborn response. That's why he appeals to Deuteronomy here when he does, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There are two or three people who can stand at, in a congregational meeting and say, yes, I talked to Joel and he is a stubborn. He will not listen. Secondly, though, you need to go talk to somebody else because you need to uh, uh, check, uh, you need someone to check your accusation. Someone who can talk to you about it and someone who can, can help you think through it. This process is, is rarely neat. Sometimes you need someone to say to you, you know, I don't think that I see the sin pattern that you do. I, I think you're wrong in your accusation. Uh, it can happen. False accusations uh, happen. Uh, maybe there's times in which these other people need to say to you, this is something you need to let go. Mm. Getting someone involved will help you proceed wisely in this situation. Now, hopefully, again here, the, the process stops right here with repentance. Two or three have gone, and the brother or sister says, oh, you're right, you're right, I'm going to turn from this. But if not, here's step number four. Step number four, congregational cooperation. Congregational cooperation. Tell it to the church. Now, Jesus does not here specify how long this is supposed to take, but it may be very slow. Why? Because you're trying to determine along the way whether or not the brother or sister is repentant. Are you giving them opportunities and time for them to repent? Ask all along the way, what's happening? What's going on? Are the things that I don't know, that I don't understand in this situation, are there circumstances at play that I don't have a grasp on? It's a slow process. 
Tell it to the church. Uh, Paul describes a situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where he called the church to immediately expel someone. That happens, but normally this is very slow. Tell the church. So the church can join with you in praying for and pleading with this brother or sister. And if they refuse to listen to the church, we come to step number five, excommunication. Excommunication. That's what Jesus describes in verse 17. If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Now notice here, this is a church action. The church has to do this. No elder, no, uh, no pastor, no board of elders has the authority to do this. This is done by the church. In chapter 16, when we talked about binding and loosing, Jesus seemed to have his eye on Peter, but here he's got his eye on the whole church. The whole church has this authority and responsibility. Now, treat them as a pagan or tax collector. What does that mean? Well, they've moved in the passage from being a brother or sister to being a pagan or tax collector. What does that mean? That means they're no longer to be treated as a member of the family, as a follower of Jesus. They're someone on the outside, not on the inside. Now, what, is it, what does it mean? Well, actually, we should talk about what this does not mean. This does not mean that the brother or sister is not a believer. does not mean that. No church has the authority to revoke someone's salvation. Forgiveness is something that God gives. Excommunication does not condemn someone to hell. That is not what is happening. What is happening here is we, the church is removing the affirmation. The church can no longer affirm that you are a believer. You may be a believer, but the church can no longer affirm it. That's why it's, it's appropriate to excommunicate members who do not attend church. Is that outward, serious, and unrepentant? I think it's all three. And if you don't come to church, we have no basis, no reason to continue to affirm that you are a Christian. Treating them as a, pa- a pagan or text collector doesn't mean that he or she is not a believer. It also does not mean shunning them. It doesn't mean shunning them. Huh. We're familiar with shunning, aren't we? We live in Lancaster County. First uh, Corinthians 5 says, Do not even eat with someone who claims to be a believer but continues in unrepentant sin. That's true. But if they're a family member, you still have family responsibilities toward them. If the church excommunicates your wife, you are still called, her to, called to love her like Christ loved the church. You're still responsible to love and honor your parents if the church excommunicates your parents or your children. Okay? This is not end your relationship with them as brother, as father, as daughter, as husband, as wife. It changes how you relate to them, but it does not erase those family relationships. And that's actually where I'm going to dodge this. This is actually where some of the greatest questions come. What does it look like for me to have a child who has been excommunicated from the church because of their unrepentant sin, and how do I relate to them? That's a thorny, that's a difficult question. Now, notice here that a church is to do this Patiently and slowly, but definitely. 
there comes a point in time where the agonizing has to stop, or at least the agonizing is matched with action. Follow these steps. This is not an eternal process. Jesus did not command us to engage with people in this eternally. A failure for a church is not in getting to this point where we excommunicate someone. Failure is never getting to this point at all. That's the failure. If the church is one of the ways that God gives people assurance that their faith is real, we are not helping anybody by continuing to affirm what we can no longer affirm. Now here's the objection that you might want to ask. Here it is. Jesus thought about it in advance, but here's the objection. You want to say, Divinity, are you sure about this? This is a little harsh. It's a little firm. Are you sure that this is what Jesus wants us to do? Well, just in case you wonder, remember what he said in verse 20. Where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. He really means us to do this. We have his authorization. It's what he wants. So that's an introduction to this process. I'm I'm not in the illusion this morning that I've answered all your questions. Actually, the text doesn't seem to answer all the questions that we want to ask. Uh, Last fall, the elders went to a conference where uh, the experts on church discipline were talking. That was the theme of the topic of the the week, the two days that we were there. And uh, I I was thrilled because people would stand up and ask the experts questions and the experts would say, ooh, that's really tough. That's a good question. We'd really have to think and pray about that. Made me feel like our elders meetings were more normal than they, than I thought. Hmm. it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to involve a lot of discernment and a lot of examination and a lot of prayer, but it is supposed to be done. It's part of belonging. We're familiar with how devastating earthquakes and tsunamis can be in Southeast Asia. It was over 10 years ago that that one uh, caused uh, the death of over 100,000 people. Well, There was another one that we didn't hear about. It was on October 25, 2010. There was an earthquake earthquake and tsunami, uh, and and it killed hundreds of people in in a small Indonesian island. What makes that that earthquake and the tsunami even worse, their loss even worse, is that since 2004, scientists and researchers have been trying to set up around the islands a buoy system, a buoy system that can sense earthquakes and tsunamis so that the warnings, warnings can go out. It, 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 would save a, it would be at least a few minutes warning so people could get away from the beach, maybe get to higher ground. What they discovered after that October disaster is that uh, two key buoys on an island weren't working at all. In fact, they estimate that 30% of the, the warning buoys that they've put out have drifted away or lost power or are malfunctioning. What good is a warning system if it doesn't work? Here's Jesus' warning system. He set it up for us. Following it is hard, but it's part of how we rescue one another. It's part of how we care for one another. It's part of how we, like the Father, are shepherds caring for the sheep. It's how we react to one another like forgiven servants. It's how we win one another over. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we read in this book, as we read of this task that you have given us, that you have called us to do a difficult thing. Father, there is 
no one, very few of us perhaps in this room, who relish confrontation. But Father, we do ask that you would empower us with, the, with love that is courageous. Love that is courageous enough to take the logs out of our own eye. Love that is the courageous enough to go and point out to a brother or sister his own sin. Lord, we ask that you would increase our fidelity to this call that you have given us, that we might reflect your glory, that our, our, uh, the, the, that our love for the gospel might expand and grow. Would you sanctify us so that we can restore one another gently, wisely, graciously? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you embedded into your body this rescue system. Enable us to take it up with a sobriety and with gladness as we follow you. You are our great Savior. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.